So we're in the middle of 1 Corinthians chapter, uh, 1 Corinthians now, um, and uh, some ways it can seem a little tedious because it seems very negative in many ways. Um, it's all about things that we shouldn't be doing. And um, I put that, uh, I bet you know that song, written by, in about, I think, 1944, by a, a guy called Johnny Mercer. But he did say he actually based the words on a church sermon. Um, and it says, actuate, accentuate the positive. But to do that, we need to eliminate the negative. Uh, this is going to play up, yes. And um, I wonder if you ever thought, actually, if you, I put the abridged version of the Ten Commandments up there on the slide. Almost all of them tell you not to do something. There are a couple of exceptions. The one about the father and mother is stated positively, honour your father and mother. And it does say, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. But then, as it's expanded, it then tells you all the things you shouldn't do on the Sabbath day. Now, that's, if you think about it, it's a little odd because God, this is, God was telling the people of Israel, in a sense, what he was like and what he expected of them. And to put it rather negatively like that seems a bit strange, really. It's totally to our modern way of thinking where we, you know, we always like to accentuate the positive. Um, and actually, it's, it's also interesting that um, when Jesus was asked the, um, the question by what is the most important part of the law, he didn't quote the Ten Commandments, as perhaps we would have done. He actually says this, the most important one is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbour as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Now, um, Jesus didn't make these words up. He, he is uh, quoting from the books of the law. The first part is from Deuteronomy and, well, Deuteronomy 6 verses 4 and 5 about loving the Lord your God with all your heart and the bit about loving your neighbour, um, which often people think Jesus made up, often said as you know, his characteristic of his teaching, but it is in fact a quote from the book of Leviticus. Um, <coughs> now actually this says, if you like, it says much the same thing as the Ten Commandments, but it says it positively. Um, the first one says that uh, the first few commandments, the Ten Commandments, are, of course, are about our relationship to God. And um, Jesus says, actually, you can sum them up by saying, we should love the Lord our God with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our mind and with all our strength. And uh, the, the rest of the Ten Commandments, are, of course, are about um, our relationship with our fellow humans, our neighbours, as they put it. And um, the second uh, second commandment that Jesus quotes here is love your neighbour as yourself so in fact he is really referring in a sense to the ten commandments but he's putting the positive spin on them if you like to use that term 
rather than the negative spin. And in fact, the Puritan Thomas Watson, who wrote a book on the Ten Commandments, actually made this point. He said that when the Ten Commandments forbid something, they are actually commending its opposite. And that when you read them, you should uh, sort of bear this in mind. And Paul takes a, a similar approach here. The fact is that really to, to explain what you, we should be doing, it's difficult actually to avoid explaining what we shouldn't be doing <laughs> by contrast. Um, but we need to think, I think, that he's not just saying what we shouldn't be doing. He is, he is actually encouraging us in positive holiness and in positive behaviour. Um, and of course, as we all know, in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul expounds the importance and supremacy of, of love, if you like, putting the things positively. But before he gets to that point, he, ta he tackles the negatives. He goes, on, he goes, if you like, to explain what love for fellow Christians is not. And today, um, in Christian circles, as I said, in the world, we like to be positive, but you can't have, in a sense, a positive without a negative. In order to accentuate the positive, we do have to eliminate the negative. And um, we most definitely, as I said, should not mess with Mr. In-Between, which is what some of the Corinthians were trying to do. Um, so, let's have a look at this passage then. Well, as you have seen as when we read it, um, Paul does, deals with two uh, aspects in this chapter. First of all, disputes between believers, and we might relate that to the Ten Commandments that we read, that you shall not covet. Um, and the second is about sexual immorality. Um, now, well, clearly that relates to the command, you shall not commit adultery. Or I heard recently, for the politically correct, um, it's not called adultery anymore, it's called uh, relational mobility. That's the politically correct term. So, uh, if you meet any um, emerging church Christians or other postmoderns, you'll be able to talk to them now because you'll know what relational mobility is. Did at least uh, it, when I heard it, the, the phrase it was used by actually it was used by some uh, in a book by somebody who was uh, attacking it. It's used, so it wasn't. But it, at least they had said it was the sin of relational mobility, which I suppose is something they hadn't uh, got rid of the word sin. But <laughs> anyway, that's by the way. You shall not commit adultery. But actually, what is slightly strange about, or interesting really, about this um, second issue is that Paul also relates this issue of sexual morality to not making an idol. As we see that in verse um, 17, uh, well, 16 and seven, 17 and 19, sorry, uh, about the body being a temple of the Holy Spirit. In other words, well, we'll come back to this, but he is, I think, relating it actually to the sin of idolatry as well as the sin of um, adultery. So what we're going to do is simply uh, look at these uh, points in a bit more detail. <coughs> now if you go to law, you do so presumably with the expectation of winning your case. You believe that you have the right of it and that the, your opponent um, has done something wrong and um, that the judge is going to set that right. And of course nowadays we have all these adverts on the television of people, of solicitors and other people trying to persuade you to uh, go around and sue somebody. 
Um, so, uh, you know, if you've just fallen over in the road, it has to be somebody's fault nowadays. Um, but you do, at least, if you go to law, you assume, or you hope, that you're in the right, and you will be shown to be in the right, and that you will win, and um, your opponent will lose. Otherwise, what's the point in doing it? But um, Paul says that if you go to court against another believer, then actually you've already lost the case. Verse 7, the very fact you have lawsuits among you means you've been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? In fact, Paul says that in this particular court there are only losers. What does he mean by that? Well, assuming the complaint actually is genuine, that something really wrong has been done, then the defendant has been defeated because he has coveted and stolen something belonging to a brother. But also the plaintiff has been defeated as well because he's forgotten that Jesus said to bless those who curse you and pray for those who will treat you and if someone strikes you on the cheek turn to him the, the other also. If someone takes your cloak do not stop him from taking your tunic. Give to everyone who asks you and if anyone takes what belongs to you do not demand it back. And so Paul picks this idea up, doesn't he, and says, um, you've been defeated already, why not rather be wronged? And um, in fact there's a third loser in this court as well, because Jesus has lost out as well. Because remember that Jesus said, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And if we're going around suing each other, particularly parading this dispute before unbelievers then his words are rendered meaningless aren't they they won't, they won't be saying you know you'll see that my disciples if you love one another they'll be saying what idiots these Christians are can't even get on with each other and these minor things so in this court there are always losers and um, really there's not much more to say to it about that than, than that is there um, we shouldn't be suing each other, but what we should be doing, of course, is positively in encouraging, promoting the benefit of others, even at sacrifice to ourselves. Therefore, as we have opportunity, it says, Paul says in Galatians, let us do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of believers. So we shouldn't be looking to do each other down, we should be looking for mutual benefit, even among the things of this world. We should be looking to help each other out, not try and steal from each other. Simple as that, really. Not much more to be said, but this is a thing that we need to remind, be reminded about. It is perhaps worth noting that in verse 4, Paul does acknowledge it might sometimes be necessary to settle an issue between believers. And he says that if you should do that, surely there will be somebody in the church who's competent to do that. Um, of course, we know that a few years ago we had an, an issue with the Wabe mission over this particular building. Um, it was necessary to decide the legal ownership of the building and the two houses which have now been sold off. Um, but I'm glad to say that neither side resorted to the civil law. <laughs> um, we both said at the start we're not going to do that. Um, we did actually get a lawyer involved, and to some extent he is still involved, but he was a lawyer who was a, was a believer, so we found somebody in the church who was competent to help out. 
And so I think occasionally perhaps we will have to judge issues of this nature between us, but we should do it by looking for mutual benefit, not by looking for uh, to play one off against the other and get as much as you can out of it, but rather how can we both benefit from this situation. And uh, so, it, so it does occur occasionally, but then we can find we can find a different way of dealing with it, as indeed we did over this particular issue. Also, he also points out that um, if you go to law in this way, you're in danger of not just losing the case, but being disinherited as well. Because that's what he says, isn't it? In verse, um, how is it? Verse nine: Do you know, know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? And do not be deceived: neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor, nor so on. I won't read the whole list. But um, not only is the particular issue of this world at risk, if you go to court, if you bite each other, as Paul calls it earlier on in the letter, but you list you risk losing something far greater, not just losing your field or house or whatever the dispute is about, but losing your internal inheritance. Oh, okay, that's not good. It's happened. Yeah. Right, I think maybe it's run out of power. Sorry, let me just very briefly plug it in again. I'll, I'll carry on anyway, but I'll just plug the power supply in. Probably as I might find I can't get the slides back then. try and get it back on but we might have to carry on without the slides is that going to come back on I don't know well anyway um, what I want to I'll try and get the slides back but what I want to do now, uh, now for the rest of the time is look at this second issue the issue of um, sexual immorality and that actually is somewhat more complicated than the, the first issue here. And in fact, <coughs> oh yes, sorry, just before I do that, I did want to mention one thing. Um, you'll notice that in this second half of the chapter, Paul talks a lot about the body. Now, I've always assumed that, repl that um, refers to the individual body, um, the individual, you know, our own bodies. Um, but I did read one person who pointed out that everywhere else in, the, in Corinthians when it talks about the body it refers actually to the church um, and also that in verse um, 19 when he talks about the you, do you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit the you there or your is actually the plural form so it has been suggested that perhaps the body referred to here is the church but I personally I find that a bit hard to to go with because it does talk quote this verse about um, uniting with a prostitute and they shall become one which clearly refers to individual sexual acts so um, I think I'm going to stick with the more traditional 
view that it refers to the individual Christian, but I thought that was at least an interesting idea that it was worth thinking about, that it might actually be referring to sinning against the body of the church. But uh, it doesn't make too much difference, but see, it would be nice to be sure what is meant there. Am I going to get any... Ah, it's come back. That's a good sign. Okay. I shouldn't take too long and get it up again, so I will get it up again. This is going to work now, then. No, okay, I'll forget that. I'll just use the keys. Yeah. Um, so, but anyway, so we'll look, let's look at what uh, he says here about um, sexual morality. And in fact, I think there are three views of sexual morality that are, are looked at in this section, which we can pick out. And the first view what is known as the Gnostic view um, and uh, it is generally considered that uh, there was a lot of Gnostic influence in um, Corinthian church and the thing about Gnosticism was that it took the view that spiritual things were, were distinct from material things and so when he says here um, in verse 13 he's saying food for the stomach and the stomach for food he's saying that you know, what happens in the stomach and the body and food has nothing to do at all with spiritual realities. And therefore, you can just do what you like. It doesn't matter. Um, it's a physical need that needs to be fulfilled but has no effect at all on the spirit. It's, if you like, an itch to be scratched in the most convenient way possible. And it's okay to enjoy the experience, but it doesn't really matter very much. Um... And so to this view, sexual freedom is an example of Christian freedom. And so he quotes, doesn't he, says in verse 12, everything is permissible for me. And um, yes, okay, says Paul, but you've actually been set free from bondage, he says. So why on earth do you want to sell yourself back into slavery? And that's what you're doing if you um, say, okay, sexual licentiousness is all right, because you'll find it takes you over and you'll be mastered by it. So having been made free and having claimed your freedom, you will soon find that you're, you've sold yourself back into slavery. And um, that is point that Paul makes. It is simply not true that what we do in the body has no spiritual significance and Paul is very keen all the way through to make that very clear that um, it, it certainly does matter. Uh, now the second view that was around a lot at the time 
is the pagan view. And the pagan view, in a sense, is almost the exact opposite of the Gnostic view. Because to the pagan, sex is of the utmost spiritual significance. And um, there's another song here, I haven't put it on the slide. But uh, do you know the Fairport Convention song says, oh, Come all you roving minstrels, and together we will try to rouse the spirit of the earth and move the rolling sky. Well, if you've got... This is sympathetic magic. Um, the sky god and the earth mother have to be controlled into doing their thing so that the earth will be fertile and we will have enough to eat. It seems that over the winter they forget how to do it. There seems to be the thinking behind it. Um, but um, doing this with music is uh, a bit tricky. It's all right if you have the talent of Fairport Convention, but um, most of us don't. Uh, so, they used to do it with sex. Sex is so much simpler, so much easier. You don't have to be James Bond or Matahari to make the earth move, do you? That's why we use that expression, isn't it? I don't know where it comes from, but you know, say, did the earth move for you? Um, it's sympathetic magic. Any halfway competent temple prostitute will be able to do that for you. And this surely is what Paul's getting at with his references to temples. He's actually um, saying that in fact this is a form of idolatry. Now it's interesting that paganism has always been popular in Africa and parts of the East but for a thousand years or so it's been a product not available in the West but uh, recently that has changed now you can become a druid again or some other form of paganism now available, it's like uh, G.K. Chesterton said when people stop believing in God they start believing in anything um, and so we have paganism reintroduced Paul's response to this actually is, is quite radical isn't it in the Old Testament, the prophets used to rail against these pagan sexual practices. Remember all these prophecies against the Baals and the Asherah poles? <coughs> and of course also, they often used adultery as a metaphor for spiritual apostasy. What Paul does here is take this prophetic idea to its logical conclusion and say that actually they're the same thing. <laughs> um, sexual immorality is idolatry. And I think if we don't make that link, then verse 18 actually seems rather odd, doesn't it? Because verse 18 says, Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Now, when you think about it, that actually sounds a bit odd. Uh, because surely there are other sins that are against your own body, surely drunkenness or gluttony other forms of self-harm are sins against your own body and yet remember actually Jesus actually um, said something that perhaps, perhaps the Gnostics latched onto I don't know but said that remember it's not really food that makes you unclean because that just goes in and comes out the other end it's what comes from inside that makes you unclean um, and so what, what's, uh, what, what's Paul getting at here when he says a man's sins commits our outside his body but he who sins sexually sins against his own body it seems to me that whether you take the body here to be the, your individual body or the, the church 
he's saying here that, well he does say here, don't you know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? In other words, the place where you're supposed to be meeting with God is where you're actually meeting with an idol. You're making, taking this uh, pagan idol and uh, bringing that into the temple, if you want to put it that way. You become, in committing this sexual sin, your whole body is immersed in idolatry and you become one with the idol. And um, this, perhaps by analogy, is the case for all sexual sins. You may, you may think, well, that, surely that only applies to the temple prostitutes. And I suppose literally it does, but um, Paul seems to be expanding that actually to all forms of sexual immorality and saying you're, you're bringing an idol into the temple of the Holy Spirit. So what is the Christian view? Now, that's one reason why I thought it was worth pushing this, this thing, because um, there's going to be a lot more about that, I think. But um, in summary, in a brief summary, what is the Christian view of um, sexual union and sexual morality? And um, Paul, as Jesus himself did, quotes this, this um, verse from Genesis about, um, where was it? Uh, where it is said, the two, of, two will become one flesh. Oh, oh sorry, it's Deuteronomy actually, not Genesis. Isn't it? But um, that sexual union is the defining act of marriage, even more than the marriage service. marriage is not primarily a legal issue as David Cameron seems to want to make it it's primarily a spiritual issue now I think I would say contrary to the Catholic view it's not only for the propagation of the species although of course in the Old Testament um, having inheritance in the land is an important topic but um, I think it's it's more than that because the Christian view um, sex is about spiritual union and completion uh, because uh, in Genesis 1.27 it says um, that God created man in his own image male and female created he them and then in the story of the garden the, the, as the female as it were is separated from the male Adam and um, when they, we come to the, or they came together in sexual congress then the, uh, they are reunited and they become in a sense a more complete being and this is the, uh, what the Christian view that is surely being said here um, the whole becomes greater than the sum of the parts. And so what um, can we, what does this tell us about our sexual um, behaviour? First of all it's characterised by faithfulness because they become one flesh, you can't sort of mix and match. Um, they become one so the whole becomes greater than the sum of the parts and so humans are supposed to pair bond for life if you want to use the biological term some animals do pair bonds others don't but humans are supposed to 
and yet so often we don't. It's odd, isn't it? I mean, animals either do or, you know, birds, it's usually most species of birds pair bond and they do it faithfully for years. Don't seem to have a problem with that, but we humans do. <laughs> and when they don't do this, it's regard, always regarded in the Bible as a spiritual failure for whatever reason. It always gets complicated like David and Bathsheba and leads on to all sorts of other sins. Um, because we're not supposed to live like that. And um, it also implies that ideally every child should have a father and mother. This is a deeply unpopular principle in the new, in the current age. Yet the male and the, the child needs a male and a female parent because they're different and um, they need to receive from both. Now, of course, this has always been a hard thing. There's always been, you know, there, there are people who are widowed, they're orphaned. But then in the, in the scripture, there's always a special place reserved for the widow and the orphan because that completion is broken and it's regarded as an undesirable state. Nowadays, it seems to be regarded as, as the desirable way to do things, but, but it isn't. Child should have a father and mother. And if for some reason it doesn't, then it has to, that need has to be fulfilled by some other means. But ideally, family should be a father and a mother. And of course, for this reason, we reject same-sex marriage. Same-sex relationships can be very faithful, as I think the new Archbishop of Canterbury pointed out. Um, he did say at least that he nevertheless he supports the church's position on marriage but he didn't go on to defend it very well I have to say uh, but this is the reason because it is the uniting of the male and the female principles to, to make um, say something that is greater than the sum of the parts and we need to stand up for this view it's very much been attacked over the last 30, 40, 50 years and it's got eroded on all sides and it's going to get eroded further I'm sure things that now are still regarded as unacceptable will soon be regarded as acceptable if we don't turn its back and everything less than this damages our families and so even in the world we could say well we'll do this in the church but it's no good worrying about it in the world but the world, even in the world we need to take the view that um, we need proper families uh, because our society is based on families that's the way our society, human society is organised it's organised in families and uh, so we need proper families but still it's also worth saying that <coughs> oh, come on there oh dear sorry I've got Sorry, I messed up my slides there. I had two that... Oh, no, that is right. Sorry, that is quite right. Uh, yeah, that is right. Um, it is also true that this union between man and women is actually limited. It's limited by death. And in... Um, um, Jesus says this, doesn't he, to the, to the Sadducees. In the resurrection, this is Matthew 22, verse 30, in the resurrection people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. But um, 
So it is limited by death. Presumably in heaven it's replaced by something greater than that. And um, perhaps Paul's hinting about that when he talks about the union with the Holy Spirit, spiritual union with, with God in the Holy Spirit. So perhaps marriage in, in the resurrection is replaced by something greater. So it, it is limited to that extent and that does have implications for this life and that's what Paul deals with in chapter 7. So we'll come back to that next week and, and look at what he has to say about that. Uh, because it's only actually the mirror of something greater. And here actually Paul kinds of agrees with the pagans, it's just he has a different God in mind. Um, in Ephesians he says that marriage mirrors the relationship between Christ and his church. And here he says it mirrors the temple as the place where we meet God. Just as a man is united with his wife, so God is united with a man or a woman through the Holy Spirit. And hence marriage is not compulsory for Christians. Um, Christians may and do remain single, but only if they can remain celibate. And that is the issue that um, he deals with next year, next, next year, next week, sorry, in the next chapter. Um, and as I say, Jesus points out that marriage is only till death. So we'll pick up that issue next week, so I won't go further into it now. <coughs> so, Paul does ask us to model the values of the kingdom when we are saying that we're not um, going to sue each other. He's actually saying, of course, that what we should be doing is looking out for each other's benefit. We should be helping each other, certainly not trying to do each other down. And uh, when he talk, says flee sexual immorality, he's actually encouraging us to live good lives and uh, for our marriages to be secure and solid, and that if we're not married, to live celibately. So the message is always repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's always heaven, kingdom of heaven is the crucial issue. The rule of Christ, the kingdom of heaven, is demonstrated in the church. The kingdom of heaven, Jesus said, is amongst you. And we need to live according to the values of the kingdom of heaven, even on this earth. And that's what um, Paul is asking us to do here and yet I don't think Paul would want us to stop there because it could get very depressing in fact we could find ourselves like Martin Luther as saying well yeah I know all this but I can't do it um, you know I know God is going to judge me because I just can't live like this I don't know how to do it and um, Paul of course is never going to leave it at that and here actually in the middle there's one bit in the middle here that I haven't dealt with yet but in verse 11 he says some of you were all those things a list of uh, sins that he just read out he says some of you were all those things but you were washed you were sanctified you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So we have, if we are believers, we have been declared righteous. 
but we have to put that into practice and we have to be sanctified and as um, sanctified is a technical term and it has a double meaning in a sense well what it means literally of course is set apart for God's use but it has two aspects to it it says Paul says you were sanctified you were washed and that is true we were washed if we put our faith in Christ when we turn to him we were sanctified we were set apart but we also have to live it out and that's the work of the Holy Spirit in us to live according to the values of the kingdom and to fight against the uh, not to sell ourselves back into slavery by doing living the way that the world does and so we shouldn't we're not even supposed to get depressed and discouraged about this we're supposed to be encouraged and say that there is a better way to live that we can in live in true freedom um, not totally not in this life but that we can work towards it and we can live significantly yeah, um, according to the values of the kingdom even in this life and that's what Paul surely is asking us to do so we do need to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand but that's not a depressing thing in a sense it's a encouraging thing that we can change repent of course means change direction we can change and live according to the values of the kingdom by the power of the Holy Spirit so I've decided to finish not with a hymn about the holiness of God although we could, we could have done but I decided we'd, let's finish with a gospel hymn hymn number 704 which reminds us that God accepts us just as I am and that we have to come to a hymn first waiting not to mid rid myself of one dark blot we come to him first and then we can set about the business of um, of ridding ourselves of the things that we'd rather be without and which hang on from the old life but I thought it was good to remind us that we come without any plea but the one that Jesus died to set us free we don't do these things to make our, justify ourselves before God we were already justified Paul says rather to live as the kingdom so let's sing 704 great gospel hymn I think we should sing it all the time we think of it as a gospel hymn and so we only sing it at evangelistic rallies but it's a pity I think actually because it's always good to remind ourselves that we come without any plea except that the blood of Jesus was shed for us so let's sing 704